following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, um, I am so glad that some things work better than other things. Let let me give you an example. Um, Apple and Android, all right? For you tech-savvy people, we all know who the obvious winner is. And you get to decide that, because I don't want to get in trouble. Um, another example is, is this past, this, you know, this summer, I don't know if you guys know this, but the Brown family has been undertaking this little project. They've been weed-eating the cemetery outside of town, and they invited me into it. Now, here's the thing. I'm a city kid. Jamie said it. I'm used to, you know, getting out the push mower and push mowing the suburban lawn and getting out the electric weed-eater, you know, doing the driveway, and it's a 30-minute process, and then we call it a day. And then about the Browns with their gas-powered weed eaters. And uh, it was no longer a 30-minute process. Now, it was like a 12-hour process. And, and, you know, the first day, I, I was just not expecting it. I get out there, and they're like, okay, you do this with the gas. You pull the thing. You go. I'm like, all right, cool. Oh, no, a chunk of grass. Um, and, and you go around the headstones or whatever. And, and I was, it's hard. It's laborious. It's tiring. And, you know, halfway through the day, I'm going around this headstone, and I just found myself praying. I'm like, God, can you make the grass shorter? And he, he responded to me, and he was like, you need water because you're not praying right, dude. I'm like, you're right. So I went and got water. My folks came into town uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was describing this process to them. We were sitting with David and Kathy Hershey in the living room just talking and catching up, and, and I was describing this weed-eating job. And I was you know, it's like, it's so hard, it's so laborious, and it's, it's just, it's, it's a lot of work, Mom and Dad. And then Kathy speaks up, and she goes, you know, back in my day, <laughs> we didn't have them fancy weed eaters. We had hand clippers. And we had to go around each headstone with the hand clippers. And I started praying again. I was like, God, thank you for weed eaters. <laughs> and another thought went through my head, and it was this. Man, I am so glad some things just work better than other things. I think our author understood that well. He understood, as we've been talking about all summer, that Jesus is greater and that Jesus is better. But his audience wasn't quite there yet. They're getting, they're getting persecuted for their faith in Jesus and they're getting persecuted by their own fellow Jews. And, and, and I wonder if this thought went through their head because something was off in their worldview. I wonder if this thought of, it's just not like it used to be. It, it's just not like it used to be. You know, humans say this when we're reminiscing about things of the past. We go to our hometown and we're looking around at the buildings and we, we see that a building has been torn down or the, the sign has changed or there's a new business in town or, or that house isn't there anymore. And, and we can say this phrase of, well, it's just not like it used to be. Or maybe it's with technology. I myself have, have found myself saying this. Technology is getting a little bit more confusing, a little bit more complicated. Uh, cars are getting more complicated. Um, and, and, you know, at times it can even become more distracting. And I find myself saying, and perhaps you're with me, it's just not like it used to be. And, and I wonder, I, I just wonder, if the Hebrews in this position of they had a comfortable life, it was familiar, they knew the Old Testament sacrifices, they knew the different things to do, and now all of a sudden Jesus is here. I wonder if in their mind they're thinking to themselves, it's just not like it used to be. And so our author, he actually meets them right where they're at. And he goes, yeah, you're right. It's not like it used to be. 
In fact, let me describe for you what it's like. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Hebrews 9. We're going to start in chapter, or verse 1. We're going to go 1 through 14. For right now, I'm just going to read the first five verses. Um, I'm in the English Standard Version. But Hebrews 9, verse 1, says this. Now, even the first covenant, that covenant being the Mosaic Covenant, the one that they got at Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, that one. Uh, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship an earthly place of holiness. For a tent, we're going to find out what that tent is here in a second, was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. And now behind the second curtain, there was, there was that first curtain with the holy place, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Like, they, they did really, you know, they were working on their names there. But got the holy place and Here's the second curtain, the most holy place. All right. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So what he's doing is, is if we can get that picture up here, what he's doing is he's describing this. He's... because the. The, the Hebrews knew this image. They knew the tabernacle. They'd read about it. They'd grown up on it. They knew all about it. And what he's doing is like, okay, like here's the courtyard, but we don't really care about that right now. So we have the holy place, and here's the table and the candlesticks and, and all that different things. That's the first section. And you guys know this, like there's another section. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know. And they have the holy of holies and the ark of the covenant, you know, all that different kind of stuff. And he's saying, like, you guys remember all that? We're not going to talk in detail because you already know it. And so I'm not going to talk in detail either because nor does he. Um, but he's saying, remember that? Okay, that's, that's kind of what it looked like. And he continues on in verse 6. He says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. And I need a pause right there because this is actually pretty important. The picture that we have of the tabernacle when he says that the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties, you know, it's a madhouse. I mean, Matt Chandler puts it this way. When you kick over an ant pile, what happens? Ants go flying everywhere, and there's just ants up and down your leg. You hope they're not red ants, and you probably do a little jig. Um, they're just everywhere. Just, you've ruined their house a little bit, right? That's kind of what's happening in this tabernacle when the priests do their regular duties. People are coming in 24-7, all hours of the day, noon, 9 a.m., midnight, like every, all hours of the day. They're coming in, and they're doing their regular sacrifices and their gifts and their offering, and they're all coming in with one purpose. The only reason you ever go to the tabernacle is to cleanse a guilty conscience. That's the only reason. And that's why it was a madhouse, because you have the nation of Israel with a pretty stinking guilty conscience, continually having to go back to the tabernacle to try and make things right with God. And so, when this first section, we realize that we have a problem, is that we have a guilty conscience. As we continue on through verse 10, there's a couple sub-problems. Let me read it for you, though. Starting in verse 7. But into the second only, that second section, the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. 
According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. We got two problems with what's going on here. The first is that the sacrifices and the gifts being offered did not focus on the soul of a man. We see that in verses 9 and 10. No, someone would come to the tabernacle. Okay, they're weighed down with this goat. They've sinned in some way against, against God's law. And so they come to the tabernacle, and it looks something like this. They, they'd walk in, and the priest would be like, how are you? Why are you here? Well, I, gotta, I, I sinned. Okay, well, come with me, and, and we'll go sacrifice. And so then they would go sacrifice. And, and really, nothing else would happen. The dude would just go off and, and go on his way. The priest would be like, see ya like in a week or something because what was going on is all these sacrifices were happening but the person who came to sacrifice would walk away just the same. They would walk away with the same guilty conscience because the only thing that these sacrifices could do was cleanse the outside of the body. They did not deal with the soul of a man. Psalm 51.16 says it pretty well. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Well, why, David? You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Again, I ask why. In verse 17, he gives us the reason. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. You see, sacrifices were never meant. They were never meant to be the end all, be all for the Israelites. Because they were imperfect. And think about it. When you bring a bull or a goat, it itself has been stained by Genesis 3. And so when you bring that to an imperfect priest with an imperfect system and try and sacrifice to cleanse your inner guilt, there's not a chance that'll work. And so David is recognizing this. And he says, God, you, you're, the bull isn't the point. The point that you want me to have when I bring this bull or this goat to the, to the tabernacle to sacrifice is that it will point to something greater than the sacrifice. It'll point to a greater sacrifice. It'll point to Jesus. It'll point us back up to God. That was the whole point of this. So there's problem number one. Problem number two is, is that as, as long as the first system is in place, we cannot have access to God. Can I get the picture again right quick? Well, you can write on the, the notes later. But, but right up in here, there's a little line with some triangles on it. And I know it's hard to see, but, but bear with me. That line signifies that there was a veil. There was a separation between the holy place and the holy, the most holy place, the holy of holies. So, so regular Joes could come into this courtyard. And then priests could come into the holy place and they would offer their sacrifices. But even the priests couldn't go into the holy place, the most holy place, sorry. Even they couldn't because God's holiness was so overwhelming. There was only one man, and that was the high priest. And even he couldn't go to be and meet with God. And not even just like God himself, it was just like the presence of God. They actually had to fill the most holy place with, with incense and smoke so that the, whole, the high priest wouldn't, wouldn't see God or else would kill him. All right, so one man, one time a year on the Day of Atonement, would go into the most holy place and meet with God. And he, even he couldn't go in by himself. 
he had to take something with him. Verse 7. But into the second only, the, whole, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. Why? Because we have guilt. Because man is sinful, and God is holy, and God can't be, be in that presence. So he takes the blood, because to deal, I, I, I love this, to deal, and we're going to get to why I love this here in a second, but to deal with sin, something has to take the place of sin, because the punishment for sin is death, and death means that blood is shed. And so Romans 6.23 makes that clear. And so when the high priest goes into meet with God and atone for the sins of the people, he takes blood, but it's not just for the sins of the people, it's for himself. Do you guys see the inefficiency of this system? He can't even go in by himself. He has to take the blood of something else that it in itself is imperfect. And so we see this system, and I need to press pause real quick, because perhaps you're thinking, you're like, Phil, that's cool. We just got a lesson on the Old Testament sacrifices. Awesome. What does that have to do with me? Right? I mean, maybe as I was reading this, I was like, I mean, that, that's cool, God, but like, I don't, I don't go to David's pasture and get myself a heifer and, and slaughter it, all right, and, and atone for my, for my sins. Um, I don't have to go to a tabernacle, you know, whenever I sin. I, I just... Like, that's just not how that works. Like, what does this have to do with me? Question for you. Um, well, before I get there, actually, I have a story. Um, a couple years ago, yeah, hold on to that question. Right? Grab it, boom, okay, now we got it. A um, couple years ago, I was floating with some of the guys on my dorm floor down a creek called Shoal Creek. It's down on the south side of Joplin. Um, and we do this a lot. We go on float trips. Um, and, and it's just something that we, as a dorm floor, enjoy doing. Um, and so what we do is all of the poor guys like me, we go to Walmart and we get an air mattress, like a $7 air mattress. And let me tell you, if you're ever in a pinch, just go to Walmart, get yourself an air mattress, and then you can go floating down, which maybe not down the vertigree, but whatever river or creek you're trying to go down. Uh, and, it, and it'll work. Um, so we all have that. And then there's this one guy named Eric, and he has, check this out, he has one of them inflatable rafts. Oh, yeah. It's big. Oh, big time. Big time. He's got one of them inflatable rafts. But he had a problem a couple years ago. It had a hole in it. And so we're sitting there scratching our heads, and we're like, well, jeepers, we can't go floating without the dipper. That's what we called it. Um, and so we're like, duct tape. No, that won't work. Maybe like hardened oatmeal. No, that's not going to work. Uh, we're looking around our dorm room trying to figure out what are we going to do. Um, and then all of a sudden it hit us. It's like flex seal. Yes. Did you say that, Cooper? You know what's going on. Flex Seal. Oh, my goodness. I've seen the commercials. There's a boat with a hole in Phil Swift. He's like, Flex Seal will do the trick or something like that. And he sprays it on. And then he hops in the boat. And then he paddles around in a lake and it works. And we're like, well, duh. Let's go get some Flex Seal. So we did. And we go to the store and we get some Flex Seal. And uh, we, we didn't really think this through, but we left it uninflated, um, or deflated, I guess is the way to say that. And we sprayed it on and covered up the hole, and, and we're like, that's going to work. It's going to be good, yeah. Um, now, here's the problem. We didn't quite think through the fact that Phil Swift was flex-sealing, like, a hardened surface. And so there was something for it to actually grab onto. So what we didn't think through was, we're spraying it on a raft. And when you blow up a raft, flex-seal only stretches so far and then it just doesn't work 
But we didn't know that, so we just kept going. We're like, yeah, whatever, it's cool. And so we sprayed it on, go to the creek, and uh, we blew it up. It's like, it's holding, yay. And so we, you know, pushed it off in, into Shoal Creek, and we started floating down the river. I'm on my air mattress just kind of laying back, enjoying the day. Uh, and we made it probably an hour. And then I heard all the commotion. And I'm like, what in the tarnation? And I look behind me, and Eric's just furiously bailing water out of his raft. And he's like hand paddling, because we don't bring paddles. He's like hand paddling over to the shore. And uh, we learned that day that Flex Seal was a temporary fix to a much deeper problem. And so when I asked the question, what does this have to do with us? I wonder if we have a much deeper problem than we realize. Has anyone ever had a guilty conscience? Like five of you. Okay, well, we'll be praying for the rest of you guys, and then we'll go on from there. Um, I hope this applies to you. Maybe if you're like me, you've had a guilty conscience, right? And we can do a lot of different things to deal with guilty consciences. Um, I'm not a husband, but I'm assuming, like, a husband, like the dudes in the room, when you make your wife mad, um, you have, like, different things that you think, this will probably work. And if I were to say those things, your wife would look at you and be like, it's not going to work. We haven't dealt with the real issue. Right, ladies? Am I right? There are different things we try to do to clean up a guilty conscience. We, we say we're going we're gonna to pray more. Or, or we're going to read our Bible more. Or we're going to clean up our acts. Or we're going to be nicer, more kind. Or we're going to do more good in the community and, and beyond the community. Or, or, or we'll just ignore it and just do better next time. Those aren't necessarily bad things. But they're like flex seal. They never actually get to the heart issue, the deep issue that is in itself sin, which causes a guilty conscience. There's just a patch. It's like when, you, when, you're, when you're painting a house, um, and, and the, the homeowner's trying to sell the house, and so he's painting it, and he's, he's kind of just making it look all nice, uh, and he notices that the windowsill is rotten out, but he goes, well, I got to sell the house, and, and if I just paint over it, it'll seal right, it'll, be, it'll look good, and they will never know. Um, and so he paints over it, and then, you know, two years down the road, the new homeowner is, is, is realizing there's now a leak in his house, and he goes to look at the house, and he realizes that a bunch of rotten wood has been painted over. That's what this is like. This is what these temporary solutions are like. This is, this is what the tabernacle is like. And so we're in a predicament. And then the author says this. The B word. Not that word. There we go. But. Then he says but. And y'all, I'm not even joking. When I, was, when I was looking over this and studying this, I almost did a little jig because this word is so stinking cool. It's so exciting. This word right here, it's three letters. And you're like, this guy is crazy. No, I'm not. I promise. All right? We've just, for the past ten verses, we've been reading about how hopeless and how insufficient and how it's just not going to work. The tabernacle is just not going to work. And if we end on verse 10, we have zero hope. But then the author says that. And he says, but. And I'm like, what's coming next? Because in the Bible, when an author says, but, something typically, like, something that's awesome typically follows. It switches gears. So let's read. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
than through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all. James is going to get into that. That's his baby next week. Into the holy places. And not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works from the tabernacle to serve the living God? Y'all, our problem is about to be fixed. Thus far, we've been talking through, up to verse 10, the effects of having a guilty conscience and the inefficiency of a tabernacle because it could never clean the inside of man. See, these people and we, we would we continually go back time after time. And we would bring our goats and we would bring our bulls. And it wouldn't be enough. And so we'd go back time after time after time. But Christ, when it says that he's a high priest, you know what you know what a high priest, you know what his job was? He was a mediator. Anybody know what a mediator is? Like a middleman? Like in between said party and the other party? That's what Christ Jesus is. He's our mediator as our high priest. And he's not just some guy that has to offer sacrifices for himself and then mediate. No, no, no. He is the mediator between God and man. says he passes into the very presence of God in heaven. That's the tent being spoken of. When it says that Jesus passes into the very presence, this, this new tabernacle is exactly just the space around God. There's no more veil. There's no more separation. In fact, in Matthew 27, 51, it says that when Jesus dies, when he dies, the veil that, that, that you guys remember the, the little line with the triangles on it, that veil was in the temple because the temple was a, a, a new thing besides the tabernacle, but they operated the same. Um, and, and that veil gets torn from top to bottom, straight down the middle. And what that's signifying is now there's open access to God. There's living blood that just got sacrificed. It was an actual sacrifice, not just something that was a copy of the real thing. But it actually worked. And what that means, that means a couple of things. One, it means that the blood of bull, of a bull or a goat, could, could no longer cleanse away our sin because it was stained. And so blood that doesn't stay dead cleansed our sin because Jesus rose. And so now we have living blood that has taken care of our sin and has taken the place of our sin. The other thing it means is that now we have open access to God Almighty. So what do you do with this? I mean, there's not really like any commands or like anything to do with this. And so what do you do? And, and, and my response is whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not, I think the response is the same. Stop going back to the tabernacle. You're like, what? Let me explain. When, when guilt starts to rise in your mind, the accuser starts to tell you, well, you, you're not good enough. You just sinned. You can't serve God because you just sinned. 
or, or, man, you need to work on your prayer life, or, man, you need to read your Bible more, or all these different accusations come into your head, like you, what you yelled at your, your husband or wife today, or you yelled at your kids. When those accusations start to come up and, and placing that guilt on you, what do you do? Well, you look right at Satan. You're like, you're absolutely right I'm guilty. You're like, what? Yes, y'all, we are guilty. And you tell the devil that. And you shove it in his face. And then right after that, you go to God. And you say, God, I know I'm guilty. But thank you so much, I no longer have to go to that tabernacle. Thank you so much that there's a greater sacrifice called Jesus. That, is, that died for me and took my sin. And thank you so much that he's doing what I can. Yeah, you're right, devil. I am guilty. But I'm not staying that way because there's a God who took that. And I can't do anything about it because he took it. Take that gift. And then the last part of verse 14. We use that gift. We use that freedom. We used the freedom which, by the way, is open to all. That is given to us through Christ Jesus. At the end of verse 14, he says we use that to serve the living God. We pick ourselves up. We say, yeah, you're right. Devil, <laughs> you're right. I shouldn't be able to serve the living God right now. But Jesus' blood, check this out, devil, um, he made a way for me to serve the living God because his blood took it. So that's what I'm going to do.